How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So how are you? Been a little while. Um, my family and I had the privilege of going to a family reunion. Do any of you have families? I, I can say this because it's really my wife's family. Anybody as weird as my wife's family? Uh, good to hear. Jill, we're in good company here. A lot of uh, strange extended families. No, this was a, a reunion that takes place every four years in Walla Walla. And uh, Walla Walla is not really a destination, although it's becoming that because it's becoming a little bit like Pacific Union College in that that part of Washington is becoming wine country. But uh, we gathered in mass in a hot little room and uh, learned about our ancestors uh, in the steppes of Russia who immigrated from there back to Germany after... Well, they went there because of Catherine the Great, who was German, uh, and she was uh, Empress of Russia and invited Germans to come to Russia to tame the steppe, uh, partly to uh, quell the threat of the uh, Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire, and partly because she wanted communication uh, routes established uh, along the Volga. And then the Germans had uh, a couple centuries of work there, but uh, or a century of work there anyway, before things got really bad for them. But uh, by the time Stalin came, uh, millions of them uh, were, were killed in that part of Russia. And some of them made their way out of it and came to the United States. And that's sort of the story of uh, a lot of Germans in America, including part of my wife's extended family. So that was great. That was interesting. And then uh, we spent a couple days in Portland. Anybody been to Portland? We liked it a lot. I got to tell you, if we could just take this congregation and all go to Portland, the weather's a lot better than here. It's cool. All the, well, we had a heat wave. It was so funny. It was in the 90s there, and I heard this guy just swearing in an antique shop saying, it's like we're living in Arizona. (laughs) And I wanted to say, you know, it gets to be 130 outside of, Fly, outside of Phoenix. Uh, I'm not sure you have any concept of what you're talking about here. And I remembered that 116-degree Sabbath we had last year here. I don't know, maybe it was two Sabbaths two years ago, but uh, just enough to make the hair fall off of your legs. You know what I'm saying? Just brutal. But uh, it was a lovely time in Portland. And then uh, on to other things, we were going to spend the 4th of July over uh, in Sonora with my folks, but had some things that shortened that on either side. So we did some things locally and what's called in Southern California now a staycation where you don't really travel, but you uh, go, go do some interesting things. So I visited my friend Alan Fransky in Santa Monica and my sister and some other people over this last week, and we had a great, great time with that. We did miss you, by the way. Uh, I needed the rest, so I'm glad I was gone, but it, it's good to be back. We, I never worried about you for a second. Do you know why? Because you got that guy right there, Milton Hinkle, speaking and managing things the 28th. He's the bomb, you know? And Tim Garrison, he never misses a beat either. He's just a great guy and a pastor friend of mine, so I'm glad he could be here and minister to you while I took a little break. 
Well, I thought before I went on vacation, I was going to finish my series on the church. And it turns out that we had sort of a shortened time, and I spent more time on uh, confession than I expected to. So we have a couple of areas yet in what Catholics would call the sacraments and what I would call events that mark a life that we haven't covered that point to the unique sort of ways in which church is empowered to act and ways in which it's important that we understand when we gather corporately, we're accomplishing something that generally cannot be accomplished on our own. It justifies the energy and the expense and the sort of work that we do to make this kind of community happen. Um, Just to review, and it's been long enough now that I'm going to uh, look at a note to make sure I, I have it all right. While I was in Walla Walla, I bought these really cheap reading glasses. They're fantastic. Seven bucks. They're great. The bifocals I never had. There we go. On May 24th, we covered, uh, well, that was Memorial Day, and we covered uh, Forgotten Country. And what we talked about then, and some of you have heard me recap this a couple of times, so just bear with me, was the connection uh, between what the st- What the state does, that is to say our country does, in recognizing those who have fallen that liberty might be secured, and what the church does in remembering and perpetuating the memory of what Christ did in sacrificing himself for the good of many and all, that we might be justified through faith, that we might experience salvation and grace. And so that was that connection. We remember corporately, we don't remember individually. And the reason we remember corporately is because our memory is collected in documents that we hold sacred and that we give authority to called the Bible. And that collected memory that comes forward through time, through the church, is preserved and carried on and passed forward with commentary and with experience and with understanding. And we inherit that as the faith of our fathers. May 31, we talked about the church and orthodoxy, heterodoxy, and heresy. Orthodoxy is, hopefully we know, the sort of uniformity or standard of belief in which we have a majority consent. So when you read the 28 Fundamental Beliefs book published um, for the church, that is a conservative consensus statement of Adventist belief and faith. That's what that is about. It's not a creed, but it is something that establishes what orthodoxy, at least conservative orthodoxy within the church might be understood to be. Heresy is something that goes entirely other directions, that denies the truth of some important aspect of orthodox faith. And typically we have very negative associations with heresy. Heterodoxy actually has a very similar definition in the dictionary to heresy, but I nuanced it for you by connecting it more to a pluralistic understanding of how we view faith. In other words, if I asked each of you, what do Seventh-day Adventists teach about the remnant, you might come up with a more similar answer corporately than you would if I said, what do the Seventh-day Adventists teach about Daniel 8.14 and the sanctuary doctrine? you might have a wider divergence. 
Many of you may not know it all. Some of you will know a few things. Some of you will have ideas that you inherited from a high school teacher or something that you learned a long time ago. Some of you will have contemporary perspectives. Some of you will have been influenced by the 80s. Um, And so there'll be a, a heterodoxy, if you will, a plurality, if you will, of uh, answers there that may not entirely fall within orthodoxy but represent a a sort of average of Adventist congregations, I would say. In June, we picked up the theme Witness and Proclamation in which I pointed out the truth that witness is something that, like our scriptures through authority and time, are given us as an inheritance. There's a, a sort of experiential and oral tradition that we inherit by faith through the generations, and there's the written word, the revelation that we receive. And this becomes the basis of our witness in terms of authority. But it doesn't become the basis of our witness entirely because experience plays a huge role here. We talked about that. How you and I experience God corporately and individually becomes this key part of witness. And our individual experience is borne out in the corporate. In other words, if you come this morning in a spirit ready to receive and ready to worship, you bring that spirit with you. That becomes your witness. And you do, in fact, receive. If you come in a spirit of anger and hostility and frustration, God may be able to melt that and give you something else. But you've not come in a place open and ready to receive and to participate in the blessing that happens as we do that corporately. And our testimony is shaped by these things. When I come and I affirm for you that God is alive and he has, I have witnessed him in my life in this given week, that testimony becomes part of the ongoing witness of the larger body. Now, there was also something very important that we talked about or reviewed at least at that time, and that is the way, I'm going to use some big words now, and some people have reminded me to keep things simple. So I'm going to try. The way in which universal subjectivity becomes objectivity. Yeah, huh? Okay, let's bring it way down, make that simple. When we all agree that something we perceive is a certain thing, for example, when we all agree that that shrub growing beyond the window here out there is an oak tree, it does objectively, in fact, become an oak tree for the universal agreement that we have. Does, Does that make sense? In other words, I could subjectively look at that and say, well, that's really just a overgrown weed. And that would be my own individual subjective analysis of what that is. But because when all the rest of you look at that and say, no, that's an oak tree, because of your experience in time, that becomes objectified and codifiable. And now we all know that that's an object. That is an oak tree. Does that make sense? Is that easier to get a hold of? Okay, good. I I don't want to be difficult here. Proclamation is what we get to say to the community about our witness. Proclamation is what we get to tell the world out of our personal experience of God and out of this thing that we've inherited corporately. The tradition and the word and the experience of our fathers and the scriptures. Does that make sense? Good. 
So then in middle of June, I moved to things called events that mark a life, and we talked a little bit about uh, Roman Catholicism and the way that it, it has, uh, through the years, put together the seven sacraments and how it understands those. And some of you have, have expressed profound interest and gratitude for that because you yourselves have Catholic backgrounds and it's an integrative piece for you. It's been helpful for you. And I thank you for that feedback. I've tried to be as respectful uh, of all of that as I can while understanding that we have a different way of framing it slightly and yet there are connections to that. So it's really important that we recognize that we have been around since 1863 officially and unofficially in some form or another since 1843, 1844, somewhere around there. The Catholics have been around since arguably the first century and they would go back even to the apostles themselves. That's where we have some disagreements. We can identify a Catholic church in the second century AD, after 100 AD, for sure and popes even at that time. But it's going back to the actual time of Christ that we have a little more difficult with that first 70 or 100 years after the death of Jesus that that, that becomes a little more questionable for Protestants and Adventists. So anyway, out of this discussion of sacraments, we noted that there were different types of sacraments or events. And we've talked about all of them except for two We've talked, first of all, about what Catholics call the Eucharist, or Holy Communion, or what we would simply call communion. And we talked about the way in which that is both a way of remembering and corporately celebrating something in a way that we can't individually. Because Jesus reminds us, as he reminded the disciples, that this is his body broken for us, not individually, but for us corporately and that when he does this again he's not going to do it with you the individual he's going to be doing this again in the kingdom made new with the redeemed it's another corporate celebration and so together we're able to break the bread together we're able to drink the juice together we remember and celebrate together part of the eucharist or the uh, communion ought to be confession We talked a little bit about the lost art of confession. Uh, That was a big theme in my last sermon. How we have, uh, and I'm not not going to build a confessional here in the church, and the office is no no place for that either. But nevertheless, um, there is a place for us in Scripture and in practice to, in safe ways, and we need to be able to discern those, but to confess our sins to one another. And uh, more than that, I think, to be able to learn the art of apologizing and making restitution when we've hurt one another. Because those are things that destroy and divide community. When I have taken something that belongs to you and I don't recognize the slight and I don't apologize or make an effort to restore that to you, I continue to perpetuate a breach of relationship. And relationship is what it's all about. Thank you. Relationship's what it's all about. First with, then with, 
right. And we know that this is working when, when we love each other. There's no love for God without loving our brothers and sisters. There's no statement of faith that makes any difference when we're not in harmony with those around us. Powerful, but true. Frustrating at times, but true. Difficult, but true. And there is a way, even in Scripture, for dealing with irreconcilable things. So we don't need to feel hopeless about this. We simply need to be proactive and not fail to confess our sins to one another. And more importantly, to God. There are two elements here. We don't receive forgiveness unless we what? Forgive. And it is through receiving forgiveness that we're able to forgive. Isn't that ironic? Were you listening? I'll try that one more time. It is, we are not able to receive forgiveness unless we ourselves forgive. And yet we are not able to forgive until we are able to. Isn't that a paradox? But it's true, isn't it? We love because we've first been loved. Is that not right? We're able to give someone else grace because grace has come to us. Is that not true? And yet at the same time, Jesus says, if you really want to experience what forgiveness is, be sure you also forgive. I'm going to forgive you, but I want you to also forgive one another. Let go. Don't hold things. So confession becomes an amazing thing psychologically and spiritually in our lives. When we give to God that which we cannot bear to carry any longer ourselves, and we really ought to do a lot more of that, when we give to God the, the control to make the changes in our lives, the power, we say to him, the power is yours, use it to make the changes in my life that need to be made. When we open ourselves up in this way to his act in our lives, his cleansing in our lives, there's something really restorative and really powerful about that. There's something really tangible that takes place both in the life of a congregation and in the spiritual life of an individual when that is in fact the case because it's the key it's the foundation to right relationship it's the foundation to what we would call justification being made right with so those two things kind of go together excuse me cheap glasses I've got to get them back on here Ah, yes. It's a wonderful thing. So we, we talked about those. We talked, too, about a number of others. We, those are uh, uh, events that mark a life that have to do with, um, well, not witness per se, but with conversion, with penance, and so forth. Well, anyway, we also talked about a confirmation or the act of the Holy Spirit coming upon us and giving us gifts and producing fruit in our lives. We talked about baptism and its importance. We talked about a number of, of these sorts of things. What we didn't quite get to, um, we didn't fully cover healing. That's, that's one thing we didn't fully cover. I'm going to allude to that because we did partially cover that. We didn't cover ministry or... uh, actually what's called ordination, and we didn't cover marriage. Those are events I think you would agree that mark a life, right? Yeah. 
healing, let's just start there. James 5. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Pretty basic, isn't it? Happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Sick? Call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Now that's an interesting phrase there because of the connection of forgiveness and healing. You know, I have to believe because of what I see that God is acting in prayer and in anointing even when an individual doesn't happen to rise up. And there are ways in which that can be demonstrated scripturally. We find in, I think it's Matthew 10 and Luke 11. I may have that backward. It may be Matthew 11 and Luke 10. So uh, I'm happy to be sorted on that. When Jesus sends out the 70 or 72, depending again on which book you're looking at. When he sends out additional disciples, he commands them to do what the 12 did, which was to do what he did. Heal the sick the lame, the blind, cast out demons, raise the dead. Now that's a tall order. In other words, go out into the world and do what I have done. But there's also a blessing attached to this because Jesus actually jumps for joy in the scriptures. He's actually recorded as being completely elated. He's actually recorded as, it's an unbelievable passage. I'd never seen it before this week. He's recorded as rejoicing because when these disciples come back and report that the devil, the devils responded to them and left, that things happened, Jesus says, count your blessings because you've seen things that very few people get to see. Kings and princes and prelates and rulers of all kinds will have wanted to see this and they won't get to see this. The important of the world will want to know what this is and they won't be able to witness it. You've gotten to see something unique. And and Jesus' power is with them in a very, very special way. So when we get to contemporary times and we don't have those same kinds of immediate, obvious, physical sorts of experiences all the time, it's a little disconcerting, a little frustrating. It can challenge faith. It can stretch our conceptualization of what is happening in this. But right here, there is something that gives us a clue. If there's sin involved person who has sinned will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed for the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And then he points to Elijah. James does. This is incredible, wonderful, and powerful if you've ever had the experience of being in the middle of a circle and feeling the warmth of a hand placed on your body and feeling the intensity of spirit as people who love the Lord bow their heads and ask God's spirit in a very special way to touch and heal you. If you've ever been in that place if you've ever felt the oil, the, it's slippery, it's slimy, it's, but you feel the oil 
and you realize that it is the symbol that goes clear back to shepherd times, predates David and Samuel. It's this healing balm, the symbol of the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit. Have you ever felt that put upon you? It can be overwhelming. It can be freeing. It can be calming. It can be a, a source of release. It can, it can be a moment of reconciliation and acceptance. It can be a spiritual time of renewal. And it can be a healing. Periodically we gather to do this, sometimes in very difficult circumstances and tragic circumstances. Sometimes in circumstances that are a little more common. But my testimony to you is that I've watched as people have improved spiritually, improved in attitude and improved in body when this sort of thing, when the body, the people of God come together and they, and they pray this way. I, I hope, Stephen, you don't mind me using you as an illustration, but this young man here is a miracle. It's a miracle that he's alive. It's a miracle that he's uh, able to function as well as he's able to function. And it's not a miracle that's happened in, uh, in uh, you know, isolation. It's a miracle of medicine. It's a miracle of his family and their dedication to him and his, and his physical therapy and his occupational therapy. It's a testimony to all of those things. But in anointing him, he has, no, he has not up running around, but he has more function than anybody ever believed he ever would have and continues to gain. You can say amen. God is alive and acting alive so healing is one of these events that can mark a life and it it doesn't always happen in the ways we ask it to and it doesn't always happen in the ways that we anticipate it will but it's nevertheless there and nevertheless true now marriage oh boy there's a topic for you I could say an awful lot about it. An awful lot. And you may look at my wife and say, and I bet she could say more. (laughs) And you might be right. But I really wasn't even speaking entirely of that. You see, marriage, here's what I want to say about marriage, and I, I hope those of you who have eyes will see, and those of you who have ears will hear, and those of you who can read between the lines will read between the lines, and those of you who can't, I hope you hear what you need to hear too because God is a great God. But what I want to say about marriage is that it is a social institution that predates the church. It is a social institution that predates Judaism. It is a social institution that predates any religious thing that we have connection to except through the authority of Scripture. What I mean by that is we have recorded for us the Genesis story in which man 
and woman are made for each other in this, in this story. And we have them united and producing offspring. And we have in Ellen White's works and writings a wedding that takes place on Friday night at the end of the creation week. And we have a Sabbath shared in rest and joy together. And it is a wonderful way of understanding everything important to us in this regard. But the logical extension of Genesis is not where we would want to go today. If we insist literally that it was Adam and Eve and they were the first people and the only people, then it is incest that creates the rest of the human race. Is that not logically true? Now, we can point to that and say, well, that's a product of sin, or that was okay back then because people weren't going to be born with three heads if that happened. And I don't think those are great arguments, actually. What we have, though, is an institution that becomes the sort of building block, and it takes a lot of forms in Scripture. You have men with one wives, you have men with two. You have men with multiple wives, and you have men with multiple wives and multiple concubines. And those things, to my knowledge, don't get expressly trampled upon in God's word in Scripture. Am I advocating for polygamy or bigamy today? If you go and say that, I'm going to have serious words for you. I'm here to testify that one woman is all I can handle. And I'm man enough to know that most of you men are not more man that you could handle two or three either. So, having said that, I do not want you walking away saying the pastor's advocating for something other than what is. I'm trying to lay out for you the breadth of human experience as we've related to God through the centuries and the millennia. Nowhere does God say... To Jacob, you know what? I would, I would be your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I can't. You've got two wives and one of them needs to go. It doesn't happen. Two children of one wife, ten of another, become the twelve tribes of what? Israel. So there have been in our human history a lot of less than ideal relationships recorded for us in Scripture. And some things that are strongly condemned. And today, the sort of Christian world is focused on one thing as the major threat to marriage. Do you know what that thing is? Speak. Homosexuality. And here's what I want to say about that. I'm walking on water now and I'm about to sink. I can just sense it. Because the church really became the institution that controlled marriage around 1400 A.D. Are you following me? Really, prior to that, historically, it's a social institution, which the church did not have exclusive control. But in the West, the church gained control through the Catholic Church of marriage and controlled that very closely from about 1400 on. Marriage began to fall under very strict definitions. And I think I can say that the church actually should have, because of its connection to the scriptural stories, the right to define 
what marriage is. And I think most of us would define that very clearly as one man and one woman. Having said that, having said that, the threat to marriage today is not homosexuality. The best survey out there says, boy, you are all listening really intently. I have a topic that that, uh, captures attention, I can see. The best survey or most recent survey I've seen says that 50% of the general American population divorces and 51% of the Christian population divorces. Did you catch that? The number one threat to marriage is poor financial management. And the number two threat to marriage is sexual infidelity. And the statistics of sexual infidelity in marriage are staggering. Staggering. So I hope, people of God, that you will be generous with those who are different with you so, than you are socially. But I hope that when you think about what it is that God requires, that your focus will be on making sure that you and your household are together. Is that too much to say? I'll find out in a week or two if I have a job and we'll, we'll go from there. We'll, we'll go from there. Uh, I, I want you to be sure to save the recording on this. So far, I don't think I'm unhappy with uh, where I went with that. So, uh, Touchy subject. Politically charged. Difficult, I know. And everyone with a background and experience and opinions... I just trust that people of God will be generous people and that they will understand that when it comes to our definition, many of the patriarchs and kings of Scripture did not share that definition or live by it. And we ought to be very careful about how harsh we want to be in contemporary society with others who fail at that as well. As for divorce, I want to say something about that. Jesus comments that he allows divorce because of infidelity and the hardness of hearts. And again, I want to appeal to a generous God and say that infidelity can take multiple forms. Are you aware of that? Husbands, if you go out and buy a $30,000 motorcycle without telling your wives, you have just cheated on them financially. Wives, if you rack up $12,000 of department store credit debt and you have not talked that over with your husband, you have just committed financial infidelity. Does that make any sense to you? Some of you are going, hey, what are you talking about? I don't, I, don't, I don't get this. I don't think so. Men, when you strike a woman, you have just been unfaithful. Because Jesus, as head of the church, does not strike the bride. He may chasten her in his way, but he doesn't strike the bride. We could go on 
Divorce is an unfortunate fact of contemporary society, but it's been an unfortunate fact of ancient societies as well. And when it comes to divorce, we need to be encouraging but supportive. We need to be generous. We need to understand that we have not walked in other people's shoes or lived through what they've lived through or experienced what they've experienced in the course of their relationships. We need to refrain from stepping in too quickly with any kind of judgment and be as generous as Christ would be. Because when he said this, what he was really protecting was the value of people and the value of women and the value of marriage, which is analogous to his relationship with each of us. He is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And that analogy scripturally carries us into a very sacred place when discussion of marriage takes place. Well, enough about that. Lastly, ordination. February 4, 1995, Fresno, California. I won't forget that date. I have a great picture of my son in the cutest knit outfit you've ever seen with this little cap and a little spittle on the corner of his mouth. And my wife and I looked younger. We'll always look young, I believe, but we looked, (laughs) ha ha, yeah, okay. But we looked young, and there we were. And on that certificate are the signatures of people that I I won't forget, including Madeline Haldeman, who's passed and who spoke that day. You see, what ordination means technically is to put in order, to make a right. And what the purpose of this is goes in Protestant circles back to kind of Catholicism, which goes back to the apostolic uh, thought. For Catholics, when you take holy orders, you are putting on the persona of Christ to act as Christ for a congregation. In, In Protestantism, we don't do that. In Catholic holy orders, you are ordained, that is to say, you receive apostolic succession in the laying on of hands, just as Jesus laid hands on his apostles and they laid hands on others. You receive succession of that. I've heard some of that theology in Adventism, but not a lot, to be honest. In Catholicism, when you receive holy orders, it's irrevocable. Unless, of course, the Pope revokes it because of gross misconduct. In that way, we're similar in that not all Adventist pastors end up working 40 or 42 years in ministry. But as long as they don't commit gross violations or abandon the faith, their ordination continues as valid. So what it does is it comes back to the text that, we, that Peter read today. This text found in Romans 10, 14 and 15. I'm going to go back to that very briefly. Romans 10, 14 and 15. How then, well actually we need to go back to 13. Or 12 even. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. 13, 4. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, how then that they can call on the one, excuse me, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? 
And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them who bring the good news. But not all Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Question mark. So, therefore, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. And he goes on. I'm not going to try to expand or expound upon the authority or rights or privileges of uh, ordination. But I'm going to say that it is one of those things that marks a life. And some of you have experienced it in the ordination you received as an elder or ordination you received as a deacon or deaconess. That laying on of hands, that prayer, that committing, that setting aside for a special purpose, that doesn't happen individually. I can't just ordain myself, oh, now we have a mockery in the internet. You can go on the internet and by this afternoon you can be an ordained pastor. I kid you not. All of you. You can then apply to do wedding or do whatever you, you know, I mean, it's really gotten bad out there. (laughs) But under traditional circumstances, through a body that's gone through time together, it's a special sort of recognition that marks a life commissioning, ordination, let's call it what we will. But it's all about delivering the word that is the gospel of peace, that good news, that redemption that we have in Jesus, that grace that we have in the one who was sent, and the one who sends you and the one who sends me, that hope we have, the purpose that we have as we get together and as we discern and as we listen and as we choose among us leaders which we'll do again this fall. And as we empower them to take us forward as a body filled with the Spirit, ready to reach a world for Christ, ready to have those beautiful feet that bring the gospel of peace. Let's pray. Lord, you have been our dwelling place and will continue to be. And as we struggle through the issues and questions, concerns and challenges of life, as we seek to honor you in every way that we know how, as we seek to think properly or correctly or rightly, or to discern from your word what it is that we should know or do, give us grace. For in our imperfection, we will no doubt take a misstep. But in your righteousness, you will lead. And like the good shepherd, you will take us to waters that quench our thirst and grasses that satisfy our hunger. And like the good shepherd, you will anoint our heads with oil that we may be calmed, that the pesky flies won't keep at our sores. And like the good shepherd, you will take that crook in the staff and you will pull us away from the cliff. And like the good shepherd, you will be our God and we will be your people and you will lead us to places of contentment. Even if we have to walk through valleys where the shadow of death looms over us. So in these events that mark our lives, in these things that we participate in that are corporate, that are communal, that are part of what we are together, We thank you for your grace. 
and for that which comes to us so wonderfully in Jesus. We thank you for him, for his presence in our midst, and for his spirit in Jesus' name.